0: Hey, and welcome to radio sgn we are one of the best seattle-based gay podcasts delivering the news so i'm so glad you've chosen to tune in to us this week i'm one of your hosts Lindsay, and i am a staff writer for the sgn and joining me is benny Loy, and i'm the acting editor my pronouns are she her and i'm she they and this is our show so thanks for tuning in This week, if you've gotten a chance to grab a copy of the paper, it is our finance special issue, so it's a little thicker than usual. Our writers were fast and hard at work writing about just different financial aspects that pertain to queer life. I know that I was one of those writers busting my ass to, like, find as many finance-related things as I could. But our top finance story comes from new writer Teddy McQuarrie. This article is about how the wealth gap persists among queer communities. So this really interesting article, basically, Teddy talks about how despite social and political progress, queer people in the United States are still continuing to experience disparity in wealth and income compared to cisgender and heterosexual people, which is really interesting because I know that a lot of the conversation around queerness when it comes to economics is this idea that queer couples somehow make more money or are able to save more money, especially if they don't have children that are dependents on them. I guess that kind of leads a little bit into my article as well, which we'll talk about later, but pets can be very
1: expensive dependents and queer people are more likely to be pet owners. Well, I think we also often forget how expensive it can be to be the cool aunt or uncle. Like you may not be having children, but you are definitely spending those dollars on making sure that you're the coolest. Gay family member of your nieces and nephews. Yeah. Well, and it's 2023. Like, so many
0: queer people do have families. Uh, they have children. And, you know, acquiring those children, that sounds <laughs> like such a weird way of saying it. But there's so many statistics about how queer people are better parents because they can't really accidentally stumble into parenthood as easy as, like, cishet straight people do. We certainly try. Do you go around telling people you're trying to have kids? I should start doing that. You should. That's hilarious. <laughs> that's my like number one pet peeve, too, with straight people is when they're like, we're trying for a baby. I'm like, that's just like a polite way of saying we're fucking all the time. Like, I can't just go to my grandmother and say that, but my cousin can. I'm like, anyways, that's off topic. But um, yeah. So I guess the point being that queer people, when, when and if they do decide to become parents, have to go through a process that is very expensive mm-hmm. compared to what most cishet people that choose to procreate on their own have to do and so that's you know one kind of
1: contributing factor there there's a lot of hoops to jump through yeah whether it's going to a in vitro fertilization you know there's a lot of money you have to spend on that you have to take time off for these appointments so you're losing wages on that and then all of the hump- hoops you have to jump through to adopt it, yeah. it's crazy yeah absolutely and you know adoption's expensive you've got to travel
0: to you know If you're adopting internationally, you have to travel. Yeah, there's all kinds of things there. Like, parenthood aside, this article notes that queer workers make, on average, $100 less than their cishet counterparts. And then when you bring in other marginalized identities like LGBTQ people of color, uh, trans women, trans men, non-binary people, they make even less. Which is, if you're somebody that's studied, like, wage gap in gender disparity, um, that's just kind of something that is talked about a lot. That like the gender wage gap. Mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. I feel like that's just a statistic that if you're kind of a feminist, it's like burned into your brain that like women make, you know, on average, like 75 cents to the male dollar. But then taking race into account, it really, you know, brings it down to the point where it's like black women make 60 cents to every white man's dollar and Native American women make like 50 cents to every white man's dollar. And so when you add queerness on top of that, it just compounds to show that yeah, the more marginalized identities you hold, the harder you are hit economically. Definitely. Yeah, looking
1: at the average income bisexual orientation graph that's included in the article, the wage gap between straight women and lesbian women and bisexual women is kind of it's kind of crazy. Bisexual women are apparently not doing very well, but then apparently on the other side of the spectrum, bisexual men compared to straight men are doing better yeah. than straight men that is so interesting go bisexual men i guess like yes those bi cons <laughs> get that bag yeah it's also interesting <laughs> to note
0: too that men across the board make more money than women like gay men make more money than straight women which mm-hmm. you know is really interesting i guess i could see that definitely that mm-hmm. that kind of gender privilege still plays out regardless of sexual identity So um, if you are a bisexual woman, I'm sorry to share, but you are the least likely to be making it rich, according to this graph from Purdue. The average income for a bisexual woman is $35,000, so um, I'm still below average, is what I'm hearing, but (laughs) getting there, getting there, so that's cool. Bisexual men, you were saying, yes, their average income is $85,000, I think that's because Batman's bisexual, and he probably like accounts for a good portion
1: of that statistic. Him and Tony Stark, I would say. Bisexual men, stop keeping your secrets. Share, share with the class. <laughs> well, what's,
0: lucky for us. What's the
1: what's the key here? <laughs> lucky, lucky for us. This article
0: does share a couple of keys to uh, helping improve our finances as queer women. One is that the the reason LGBTQ people might be hit by financial burdens more is a lack of savings and assets. Queer people apparently have higher than average educational attainment, which makes sense, but are more frequently unemployed. So that's something to think about, maybe. We got them student loans to pay off. That's right. And stop getting fired <laughs> because you're gay. Yeah. Well, and I wonder how much of that goes into, like, hiring biases. You know, I... Just listen to an NPR podcast about the Lavender Scare. And one thing I thought was really interesting is that the Lavender Scare... Do you know what that is? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Real quick, listeners at home. The Lavender Scare, it coincided with the Red Scare when Americans were mass-firing people accused of being communists. They were also mass-firing people accused of being homosexuals because they linked homosexuality to communism and thought that people that were gay were more likely to be corrupted or blackmailed by like the Soviet Union, which was insane. But it led to a massive amount of hiring prejudice that out queer people um, could not get jobs, could not keep jobs. If they were outed, they would be fired. It was illegal to do that. Um, This is around the same time as like don't ask, don't tell in the military. And we've seen that this kind of tug about whether or not you can discriminate against queer people in hiring practices. You know, it's kind of like the pendulum. It swings and it swings back. Obama ended the don't ask, don't tell. And then Trump reinforced that trans people couldn't be in the military. And so I think that a lot of this income inequality can kind of come back to that as well. That, you know, people hiring can be sneaky and maybe the reason they're not hiring you is because you're queer or trans, but they can still list, you know, other reasons.
1: Well, in in states like ours, you know, there's pros and cons to a right to work states. There's some benefits to us, but also employers can fire people without any given reason. And so then that does beg the question, like how much of unemployment is due to bias and also to people being let go Mm -hmm. because they outed themselves. Yeah. And I
0: mean, even aside from like this lack of legal protection when it comes to hiring practices, there's also another great graph provided in this article that shows there's not very many states that um, include non-discrimination laws covering credit. So in a majority of U.S. states, non-discrimination laws don't include credit, which means that you could be discriminated against when applying for credit, like a loan, a credit card, things like that, which again can greatly impact your financial standing. Even Oregon doesn't have non-discrimination laws
1: that cover credit. But uh, Washington, we're good. We have those. So yeah, us if you're listening from Washington. Tell us about the article you wrote about uh, finances and pets. Oh, yes. Okay. Well, so if you're like me and Benny, you probably have a
0: couple pets at home. Um, we talk about our pets a lot on this podcast. And I found just some very interesting statistics about pet ownership in the United States and how much the average person spends on their animals. First, I kind of did a little survey of people in my community in Capitol Hill. And, you know, this is coming on the heels of kind of a crisis going on in Seattle animal shelters that we've covered on our social media pages and the Seattle Times just wrote about that all Seattle animal shelters have reached capacity in the last month. Luckily, because they waived (laughs) adoption fees, that capacity has gone down, but it's still a crisis that they're facing. And one of the number one reasons that people listed when giving their pets up for adoption there is that they could not afford them because of rising inflation rates. So I just wanted to kind of do a survey to see like, how far do you have to get, you know, to reach that decision of giving your pet up because you can't afford them. Everybody I talked to in Capitol Hill, kind of agreed that they would have to be in a very, very difficult spot. Um, Some people have even said that they still would not give up their pet, that they would do everything they could to provide for them. Again, that's Capitol Hill, where if you see a stroller going down the street, it probably has a dog in it and not a child. (laughs) But it was still very interesting then to kind of look into the breakdown of how much Americans spend on their pets. So in 2022, Americans spent $136 billion on their animals. It's kind of the one of the fastest growing industries in America right now. One other thing they found is that younger generations are both more likely to have pets and more likely to spend more money on their pets. Millennials right now are the generation that has the most animals or the most millennials are pet owners. I should say that's kind of how it works. But Gen Z is the most likely to indulge in buying like clothes, birthday cakes and birthday presents for their pets, which I am guilty of doing all three. I, yep, same. Yeah, <laughs> So here's where it gets me, okay? On average, dog owners in America spend about $730 on their pets each year. So it's just dog owners. Cats are a little less expensive. And I had to then go and add how much I've spent on my pets this year. And I have spent, like, more than triple that, I'm sure. Like, I've spent at least more than double the national average on my pets this year. So whoever is spending $730 on their pets a year, like, good on you. You know how to save. The biggest kind of wallet breaker that people experience with their pets is vet bills. And that is something that unfortunately in Washington state is not going to go down. Um, the cost of vet bills is going up pretty rapidly, especially as we're seeing kind of this vet shortage crisis. The vet shortage is going on around the country, but it's definitely being felt here as well. The problem is several factors kind of going into it. So even before the pandemic, vets were being burnt out because they are underpaid and overworked. The suicide rate for vets in America is actually very high. Um, It's like 3.5 times higher than the national average for a female vet, which is crazy. So, you know, because of just all of these things, difficult mental health stuff, and like I said, long hours and not enough pay, a lot of people um, had kind of a mass exodus of the practice. So that's kind of led to a major shortage. And then when the pandemic hit, there was a huge uptick in people adopting pets. So, mm-hmm. yes, America and Americans on average have more pets now than they did before the pandemic. And that is just kind of adding fuel to this fire that was already burning. So a lot of veterinary clinics in Seattle, for example, stopped taking new clients. That's something that I experienced when I moved over here and like could not find a vet to take my pets because they're only using their existing clients now. So there is a couple of options for people that have new animals or are kind of in that spot where they're looking for a place. And Urban Animal is one of them. They are a really great walk-in clinic. So that's kind of one problem is their walk-in. So um, the line, the wait for them can be pretty long, sometimes up to six hours. They said they've also definitely seen this uptick in clients because so many people either are new pet owners and have nowhere else to go, or they've also seen pet owners that have existing vests they've been going to for years, but they can't get um, appointments in with them for up to like three months because these places are just so booked out. So Urban Animal, shout out to them. They carry your paper. They're amazing. They are just kind of doing the most for pets in Seattle's community. They have three locations and they also are partnered with a local nonprofit, Donico Pet Clinic. And Donico Pet Clinic is they're only open on Saturdays for a couple hours, but it's a location where low-income houseless people can go and receive free vet care. Donico gets uh, donations. If you are somebody you know has like open pet meds that you're not using anymore that aren't expired, you can donate them to Donico and, you know, they will go to people in the community that really need that. They're just really trying to help, like I said at the beginning of this story, those people that even if they lose everything they have, they're not going to give their pet up. And this also in turn really helps our shelters because it helps keep pets in the homes with the people that they love. And, you know, it's a great thing. So
1: it was really fun to research. And yeah, yeah. No, I know people who would sooner steal dog food before giving up their dog. Another good resource is uh, one that I use for Goose Homeward Pet. They offer spay and neutering for low-income people. And at the time, When I needed to get him neutered, I was low income. And so it is a little tricky to get in because, like, you know, there's so many other people trying to use this service as well. It is a little tricky to get yourself in. But my advice would be is that they open up for applications at midnight on a certain day. And then um, it's first come, first serve. So if you're interested in getting neutering or spay services for either really cheap or and sometimes they'll cover it entirely definitely write up your application email and then schedule it for right at midnight on that day because that's going to give you the best chance possible to be the first one in that list that's what i did because it took me several tries to get on the list (laughs) absolutely um and another good
0: tip too that i actually learned from urban animal is if your pet's on any kind of chronic medication You can see about getting those prescriptions filled either through Chewy.com or through Rite Aid. A lot of pet prescriptions are actually just human drugs that Mm -hmm. are given to animals in low dosage. So my dog Peter, who we talk about a lot, he has a heart murmur and he's on two different heart medications right now. And until they gave me that really great advice, I was spending so much money on his medicine. And now I can get one of his heart meds from Rite Aid for five bucks. And the other one I can get from Chewy for, like, 20 bucks, but that's, like, $40 less than it used to be.
1: It's the same for dog insulin, too. Mm. Two of my elderly dogs are, are diabetic, and so I have to give them insulin shots with every meal. And we get our insulin at Walmart, and it's super easy. Like, they don't even ask for an ID. You're just like, I need this specific type of insulin. And then you get it, and it's it's fairly cheap. I don't remember exactly how much it is, but it's cheaper than probably what you would get at a vet clinic. So yeah, that's I guess
0: just kind of it for if you're a pet owner, that's our advice is look into some of these resources for low-income vet care, because if you're going to skimp on anything, don't skimp on vet care for your pets. It's so important. There are programs and ways that you can help. If you're somebody that's interested in donating, um, definitely check out DoniCo Clinic. You can also contact Urban Animal for ways to help and contribute with that clinic if that's something you're interested in. And then I guess, yeah, the biggest thing, and it's actually something that kind of causes me to worry a little bit when you see the fact that like adoptions didn't go down at shelters until they waived them because I'm like, well, the $50 adoption fee is what's standing in the way of you adopting a dog. How are you going to board the vet, the vet bills? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> that's kind of a big thing too is just to understand if you're thinking about adopting a pet um, that it is a
1: big financial commitment. Wait until you're ready. Yes. Like, I mean, it's the same thing with a kid, mm-hmm. but a lot less, less so. <laughs> yeah, because you can't lock
0: a kid in a cage for five hours, but... You really can't, yeah. no. But you could do you, that You'll want to. So yeah, just uh, be prepared <laughs> for that if you're looking into it. And there's also a lot of great ways for you to not adopt, but, you know, still have a dog in your life um, if you can't afford it. There is, you know, you could always foster a volunteer, and a lot of foster programs um, allow you to bring a pet into your house, but the shelters pay for all of their medical care and food expenses. So it's a great way for you to bond with a dog that way. There's also programs like Old Dog Haven in Seattle where you can be a final refuge foster. You get a dog. They're an elderly dog uh, that was pulled from a shelter and all of their food and vet care is paid for for the rest of their life. And they're like your dog. So there are a lot of great opportunities because also pet ownership should not just be for the rich. But that's definitely deserve to be paid more. So... Think about going into veterinary practice. Listeners, we need that. Okay, so we're going to go to a quick commercial break. Speaking of finances, this is how we get paid. And then um, we'll be right back with an interview, and then you'll hear more of me and Benny. Hello, and welcome back. Uh, Joining me today for our interview is drag king, Seattle icon, Sid Seedy. What are you doing today?
2: I'm doing very well. Thank you.
0: So I've actually seen you perform a couple of times. I saw you at Trans of Visibility and you were a huge hit. Like these kids were going crazy, just in awe of you. How does how does it make you feel when you get to perform for an audience like that?
2: Whenever I get to perform for an audience, I'm always over the moon. But there's something really special about getting to perform for a group of kids who look up to me in the sense of like, yeah, that I want to be that. And it is. So uplifting because I, I didn't have that certainly when I was growing up. I'm 32. I grew up in the 90s and the O's and whatever. And during that very heavy bush era, no child left behind garbage. So to know that these kids don't feel alone and that something on stage helps them cathartically feel seen, that's so uplifting. And it makes me feel like the things that I'm doing, the art that I put out there is important, <laughs> even if it's just for like five minutes of uplifting someone. It, I feel like that stuff counts.
0: I love that. I think it absolutely counts. And it's so important. So I'd like to get into a couple of questions about your career as a drag king. Just for any of our listeners who might not know, can you first explain um, what is a drag king? How is it different than drag queens, if they're maybe familiar with that?
2: Sure. So drag, in essence, is the art and expression of gender. That's a lot of times how it's defined. It can actually be a lot of different things. I think that Nowadays, it borrows a lot from the ideas of vaudeville and stage performance in general. We certainly take cues from musicals, lots of different forms of theater. Drag in general, drag queening, everybody is very familiar with, especially now after the popularity of RuPaul's Drag Race and with movies such as The Birdcage and To Wong Fu, Thanks for the Memories. So it is definitely the idea of someone taking the gender that they were not assigned with at birth and using it as an expression or a practice in character, or something to comment about society and how society views either that gender, or the gender underneath the makeup or anything like that. And so for the queens, there is often a very big showgirl element to it. There can also be a very grunge aesthetic sort of like, "Ooh, this is the girl your mom warned you about sort of stuff. I love seeing that on queens too. You're seeing a lot more of that nowadays, which is cool, which I I won't stay too far from the actual question. But yeah, you're, you're getting a lot of pageantry. You're getting a lot of showgirl. You're getting a lot of heels, lipstick, great wigs and stuff like that. And on the king side of things, you can do that too. So for kings, a lot of times that's also defined as somebody AFAB, assigned female at birth, taking on the roles of masculinity or taking on the roles of heteronormativity within the masculine lens and either clowning on it such as the queens do to clown on femininity, kings do to clown on masculinity, or they express things about masculinity. My form of drag king normally is about the expression of feelings and the human experience within a masculine lens. Not only the suffering of being put in a box, but the joy of coming out of that box and Encouraging the audience, especially AMAVs or especially anybody who feels like they need to put themselves away to stop emotionally castrating themselves and to allow yourself to express joy and sadness and flirtation in a way that doesn't have to be defined by the fragile idea of masculinity.
0: That is an amazing answer. I love that so much. Thank you for really diving into a lot of the theory behind gender and gender roles and how that plays a part in drag. And I, I love that. I love that you transgress that box, especially for, like you said, AMAB people, which is so important because they're often, I think, really excluded from, you know, these discussions about vulnerability. So that is so cool. So my next question is a little bit less theoretical and more just kind of about you. When did you start doing drag and kind of what inspired you to want to get into it?
2: I started doing drag after I'd seen a couple of really amazing examples of it. There was a show at Baja Bistro up on Beacon Hill, and that was inspiring. I really got into it after I started watching Dragula. And actually, my partner was the one who wanted to get into drag first. And he was like, yeah, like, let's do it. I I think I can do this. And at the time, I identified as female. And so for a long time, I thought, oh, well, this isn't for me. This is for people who... Are switching genders and I'm already female. So what, what is there for me to express? I also had a long history of doing theater. So I helped him out and he taught me though, he was the one who taught me like most about makeup, but as it continued and as I continued to kind of help, he decided that, oh, the stage isn't really for me, but it rekindled my love of the stage and theater. And every time I would see an act, I would be inspired and I'd pick out songs and I'd do them in my bedroom and I'd be like, ah, but nobody wants to see them. And it really wasn't until 2020, when we were all stuck inside, that I decided to go ahead and try more makeup, try a drag king persona, do some online stuff. TikTok really helped with that, funny enough. Once I sort of got comfortable with that, once 2021 came around, and I'd been posting frequently on Instagram as well, somebody reached out to me out of the blue and just said, hey, I'm putting together a drag show and would you be interested in being a part of it? And that was my start, is pitching a ride out to Tacoma once a month to go be in this drag show in this little-known mead bar out in Tacoma. And from there, I just kept going. But that was kind of my start is the influences of the the very alive people around me and my partner.
0: Wow, that is so cool. I love that. And I love that your partner got you into it. That's such a fun couple thing to do. Some people garden, some people go to coffee. Y'all were doing drag. That's amazing. So Thank you. on the show, we've spoken to a few different drag queens. You are our first drag king, however. And a lot of them have explained that their personas are inspired by real life people, celebrities, divas. Is Sid CD inspired by anybody in particular?
2: Sid CD came very organically from within in the idea of the men I saw in my life that I wanted to emulate. But I always sort of identified that there was a sadness within a lot of the men in my life. I won't name anybody specifically except my father who is a very bright and funny man. And I think I get like a lot of his humor, especially in my acts from him. He showed me a lot of older theater stuff. He showed me the Marx Brothers. He was raising me on on a lot of black and white things that he grew up on. So a lot of it comes from him. So a lot of my drag is my father, but I also can't help but be inspired a little, not just a little, inspired by Robin Williams. I absolutely adore him. Uh, rest in peace, and all the things that he gave to the world. And I also, when I was a kid, also sensed a lot of sadness in him. And I feel like a lot of what Sid Seedy as a character is, is even in these like high energy, joyful moments, these like high kick moments, there is always that sort of tether of sadness or emotion and that catharsis of wanting to express it in a way that is then celebrated. Not to, not to say sad boy. I don't really identify <laughs> with the term sad boy, but a very human connection to the feeling of you hold life in both hands, that it is as joyful as it is filled with grief. And I think that's kind of where that character comes from. And also a little bit of Jim Carrey. I liked the mask. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I love that. And I can totally see all of those things now that you've said it. Robin Williams, Jim Carrey, like, yes, I absolutely see it. Um, Especially
2: my father, too, right? You can definitely see that.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. I know him very well. (laughs) I thought so. Yeah. So I wanted to know, and this is something we kind of talked a little bit about before we started recording, um, you were talking about crafting now that this heat wave is kind of settling down. Do you craft your own costumes?
2: I try to. I craft as much as I can. Sometimes I don't always have the time. So I I admit to buying pieces and there's no shame in that. But it, it does get expensive. But recently, actually, I had a corset that I bought. And every time I would perform with it, something would fly off of it. And I think I'm just I move too much. <laughs> it's <laughs> the problem. So finally, I just decided, you know what? All these strands of rhinestones coming off enough. It looks raggedy. So I pulled them all off. And now I'm reworking the strands and I'm pinning them and I'm sewing them horizontally instead. And, which is also nice because when I turn my hips, they won't whip the audience in the face. So a lot of times, like I'll buy something but I'll rework it. Now, other things like I have this bird costume which you can find on my Instagram. That piece is a coat. It's a black coat that I had, but the headpiece itself is attached to a tricorn a, like a Party City tricorn hat that you don't even see cuz I covered it in like this black crafting foam and I threw feathers on it where it needed feathers and put stones on it and stuff like that. So it's it's kind of a mix of like bought, and made and or like my wisteria suit which looking back on it, I have a lot of things to edit and ideas for it. But you you just take pieces you already have because I don't have a sewing background. So a lot of what I do is crazed hodgepodge. We can make this work. Sort of like demented thinking and a lot of hot glue and some ladder stitching.
0: I love that. As like somebody that made, I know it's not anything to compare, but I used to make my own Halloween costumes the exact same way of just like hot glue and like fabric glue rhinestones everywhere yeah no that's awesome (laughs) yeah i love that i think that's definitely counts as homemade for sure so you also are you have such an active persona when you're doing your choreography you're just like all over the place really first of all is that exhausting for you
2: maybe i you know it is when i come off stage i think in the moment i don't notice no i i can't say that it is horribly exhausting I do it so much now that I've acclimated, like mm. I've gotten my heart rate to go up to that and then come back down.
0: <laughs> nice. Do you, how do you prepare? Like how long does it take you to kind of go through choreography and memorize it? And like, where do you do this?
2: I have a little, little apartment and it is a one bedroom, which I'm thankful for, but it is small. And I practice as much as I can in my bedroom but i i also have a very long history of like working in theater of doing a lot of improv stuff and visually learning from the other queens and kings that i go and see so a lot of the stuff that i practice in my bedroom i can only really sort of block out in terms of like vague that at least when i hit this line i want to take this article clothing off or hit this pose or do this or that or something like that and then a lot of it on stage is actually improv because I don't know what the stage is going to be, or if it's a bar setting, I don't know how far apart the tables are going to be, how much space I'm allowed to dance in. So a lot of it I leave open for my own sake so that I'm not locked into like this rigid routine. And then the other half of it is just I don't have like a whole lot of capacity to move in the way that I would once I get to the space.
0: Dang, that is so cool. It's so cool that you improv so much of it. Like, first of all, I... Could not have guessed that. And I don't know. You're just blowing my mind everything I learned about you. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. So you said you, you've worked in so many different venues, stage spaces. Do you have any like favorite places to perform at?
2: Oh, my gosh. So recently I had the privilege of being in queer prom hosted by MixPlux of Plenty. And the Royal Hall stage is where it was held. And that was a huge stage. And I was a little intimidated by the amount of room, because normally when I get like a restaurant or a bar setting, it's compact. you know, a little movement goes a long way, but you're on a big stage and there's a bigger audience. So the bigger the movement, the better. And I was intimidated. But once I got on that stage, about halfway through the routine, I was like, oh, this is fine. I actually move a lot. (laughs) This is exactly what my energy level has always wanted. Like at the trans event, where you saw me, that was another place where I was like, oh, this stage is a bit bigger than I'm used to. But using and utilizing that space, just the bigger stages, the better. I don't mind bars. Or even like at The Mix in Tacoma, that's another just like a flat space. It's not a big space. It's not like as big as, it's like your normal sort of bar room. But because they don't put a whole lot of tables in and I get to move around a lot, like it's it's a clear dance floor. I think it's the real answer. (laughs) Just give me some room and I will go.
0: Yeah, I love that. And now I have another question for you. So we've talked a little bit about you as a drag king. And again, how that's maybe a lot of people's initial understanding of drag is of drag queens because they get a lot of, well, they've had a lot more pop culture moments, I think, in the last couple of years with RuPaul and all these other drag shows. But how do you think we can work on expanding the definition of drag so people are aware that AFAB people or anybody really can do drag it's not you know a very narrow box
2: yeah i think like with a lot of questions when it comes to representation representation itself is the key so the the way anybody can help out is by booking of course performers who identify as drag kings and drag things and drag monsters and such putting them in the shows is great but also going to your local drag shows because a lot of them, especially around Seattle and especially around what I've noticed, the Tacoma area will book a lot of different neat performers. And just because they don't have the title of drag queen, it doesn't mean there's going to be a less of a show or it's going to be any different. It's going to be just as cool. It's going to be just as glitzy sometimes and glamorous. So really just going out and supporting your local artist, I think, is the best way to do this. I've had the privilege of working with a lot of people who just are like, you're great. Do you want to be in a show? And I'm like, yeah. And the question of like being a king has never come up between us or even in the cast. I've been very respected by everybody I've worked with. So, you know, it is going out, it is supporting, it is booking. It is just interacting, talking to, and doing the own personal work of expanding your definition in general and losing any hesitation or bias you might have that could be centered around self-consciousness through the idea of being judged on what drag is.
0: I love that. That is such a good answer. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Speaking of booking and going to shows, you have a show coming up at Emerald City King's Ball. It's a festival for drag queens in the Pacific Northwest. Do you think you could tell me a little bit more about what fans can expect to see here?
2: Sure. I'm so sorry. It's actually a festival for drag kings.
0: Oh, I'm so sorry. I will. Can I retake that really quick? Yeah. Okay. Uh, So you have a show coming up, Emerald City Kings Ball, which is a festival for drag kings in the Pacific Northwest. Do you think you could tell me a little bit more about what fans can expect to see at this festival?
2: Yes, of course. Um, Fans can see a ton of drag kings coming all over over the country, actually, from what I know. I'm not 100% sure where it is being held right now, but you can follow Emerald City Kings Ball on Instagram under that same name or on Facebook as a group under that same name as well. This event takes place from the 15th to the 17th. This festival is going to be very big. The 15th and the 16th are both show nights. And then the 17th is going to be a brunch. And you can expect to see me on the 16th, where I will be in night two's competition. of A wonderful display of drag kingery. A lot of great people are going to be there. This is hosted by Sherwood Ryder and King Jabriel Games. You can support by buying a calendar, of which I am also in. Or you can also, they're looking for sponsors. If you happen to want to sponsor some kings, just get in contact with them through the Emerald City Kings Ball and they will be more than happy. I'm sure there's going to be raffles and there's just going to be so much show and so much drag kinging. It's going to be great.
0: That sounds super fun. Listeners at home, definitely check that out if you can. Sounds like it's going to be a great time. And then another question I have, uh, specifically for some of your fans, I know you have a lot of kind of younger fans, Do you have any words of advice for people that might be inspired by you and want to, you know, take the step and start doing drag? Yeah,
2: Hmm, let me think about that. The best thing you can do for your performance art is to know yourself. And I'm coming from a place of being 32 years old, so that's going to take some time. But endeavoring to never do what you think other people want to see from you. Only ever do what is true to you and true to your message and true to your art form and that may take time figuring out and that's okay your life does not end at 30 nor does it end at 40 nor does it end at 50 and you don't have to figure everything out or your performance or your art in your 20s and when you enter a space it might not always be an environment where you can be the kindest but it can be an environment where you do the last harm. so be a good co-worker, mind your P's and Q's, know yourself, and hit your marks and arrive on time.
0: I feel like that last one's pretty important, pretty specifically no, important.
2: One, very specifically important, and I think the biggest reason why I've been booked is not only because I'm talented, it's hard to say, I don't know why, <laughs> but because... I endeavor to make sure that the work environment there for everybody backstage is good and that was also something my father taught me and he's not in theater so i don't know why he knew this he's an x-ray tech but he was always like listen i know you're gonna go into theater so here's my piece of advice always hit your marks be on time and i was like you got it dad and it's worked
0: i love that i love supportive parents that is amazing and then i've got one kind of last question for you and um honestly this one might be a little more difficult to talk about so If you don't want to talk about it, we don't have to. We know that drag performers have been politicized pretty recently, especially with a lot of high-profile people that are running for president in the coming election. A lot of people have talked about drag as not being family-friendly or something that children should be exposed to. And one thing that's really struck me uh, watching you perform is just how much people are inspired by you, especially young people. And I wanted to know, is it important for you to be able to connect with younger people, What impact have you seen drag have on the queer community in that way?
2: This is a very tricky topic because one of the biggest points that always screams out in my head is that when they talk about drag, and I will come to the more personal part of it in a moment, when they talk about drag, they don't mean drag. They mean trans people and Mm -hmm. they mean the freedom of expression. And the reason why that is under attack is because if we are not looking at each other on our levels, or lower, trying to figure out who the enemy is, then we are instead looking up at the people who are responsible for us and our infrastructure and our well-being. So they are distracting us, but they are also covertly trying to distract from the topic of what it is to be trans and what it is to be free and outside of these norms. Because if anybody can be a man or a woman, then these Gender assigned things and these quote unquote American values don't exist, which means that a lot of different American values don't exist or a lot of different bigotry and racism that we have built our country on does not exist. On a more personal note, I feel I am privileged to do the work that I do. I feel that it is a privilege to be an inspiration to somebody. And while I do put in work and I do think about my message and how it affects people, it's a two way street. People cannot be inspired without me doing a thing, but I am also inspired by them continuing to live. Can you tell me what the main question was again? The ADHD went off the hook.
0: Oh yeah, no, you're great. The question was just how important is it for young people to have access to be able to see drag performances?
2: I think it's as important as any other form of art and theater because art and theater in general are tools of human expression. This drag happens to lean more heavily into gender expression, which is a way to free yourself from a lot of the things that are forced upon you, where authority figures or adults tell you what you can or cannot be. And simply in the human experience, that is not true. It is inherently human to be trans. There has never been a time in history where trans people have not existed. There has never been a time in history in which gay people have not existed. And if somebody has come along to tell you that that's a lie, Who are they? They are not history. They do not know. And they have an agenda. And if somebody is coming along to tell you who you are not, when in your heart, you feel you know your identity, even if the world is telling you something different, you have to follow that because their outside word is never going to know your heart. Just you have to stick with the idea that it is inherently human to change. And part of that change is transness and it is okay.
0: Gosh, that was an amazing answer. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Um, Sorry, it rambled a bit.
0: (laughs) No, it was honestly, was so good. Thank you. Those are all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
2: Keep your head up out there. It's hard, but little things within your community echo out into big things. Checking in on your friends, doing a small thing helps and it helps you mentally. And it's really hard and it's really scary out there. But it's always kind of been a little hard and a little scary, and that's life. And so if people behind us could survive to today, you can survive to today, too. I believe in all of you.
0: Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you to Sid CD. You can catch him again at Emerald City Kings Ball. And you can also follow him on Instagram at Sid underscore Seedy. So uh, definitely check him out. And I'm sure you'll find more promotion for shows on your Instagram, right?
2: Yes. There will be always something almost every week, I'm sure.
0: Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. Wow, that was such a good interview, wasn't it? That was
1: incredible. So profound. We're going to run out of time. So let's try to talk quick about our last thing. We spent way too much time talking about... (laughs) This
0: always happens to us. We spend way (laughs) too much time talking about dogs. I think that was the concern about having us two on this podcast. But you know what? It's okay. We're rocking it. So aside from dog news, we've had some pretty big news in the community. It's local news, but I think can also kind of be national news. We're shifting the tone a little bit because this is a difficult story. So content warning for anybody listening. We are going to talk about murder, homophobia, things of that nature. So you've been warned. Okay. So on July 29th, A 28-year-old man named O'Shea Sibley was stabbed to death at a gas station in New York City after his attackers saw him and his friends voguing. Voguing is a type of dance that is popular with the ballroom community. It's effeminate. It's beautiful. It is energetic. And it is just innately queer, too. Mm -hmm. And so he was killed because of that identity. And it really shook members of the community. So last Friday, across the country, protests were held in honor of O'Shea Sibley, including in Capitol Hill, where a group of our ballroom community gathered at the 76 gas station across the street from Neighbors Nightclub. And they just vogued. They danced it out. They sang. It was beautiful. They brought flowers. Um, One thing they said was, you know, they didn't want warning at this. They wanted to dance for O'Shea, and they did that. And it was a really cool thing to see. I was there firsthand, uh, taking pictures,
1: interviewing people. And yeah, that's kind (laughs) of what happened. That's awesome. It's powerful that they decided to honor O'Shea like that. Yeah. That just being murdered because of self-expression is insane. It's insane that this stuff is still happening. It's happening and it's happening every day. And, you know, there is
0: that concern that is this increased violence because of national homophobia that we're seeing rise with things like Ron DeSantis, who we've talked a lot about on this podcast. I think it's
1: definitely correlated. It's the fear mongering, the whole like gay people are groomers thing. They're demonizing us so that we can make a a target. Yeah. (laughs) Because, you know, what's a greater way to bring people together Than to create a common enemy. Yeah, exactly. And so that was,
0: you know, like I said, it's a difficult topic. It's difficult to really think about the fact that this man was killed just for being who he was and being joyful about who he was. You know, that's what they hate. You know, they'll say that a lot too. They say, like, I don't care if you're gay, I just care if you act on it. In a way, that's saying, I care if you don't hate yourself. You know, they want us to hate ourselves so much we'll kill ourselves. And if we express that love and that
1: joy for ourselves, then they come for us. Or they're like, you know, oh, I am i don't have any problem with gay people, as long as they don't shove it down our throats. But people also freak out when gay people hold hands in public. Like, do you mean that we're not allowed to be in public? Is that what this is, is that we can't be seen, we can't act like our straight counterparts, we can't express ourselves like our straight counterparts? Imagine somebody getting murdered because they drove a lifted truck and <laughs> and listen to country music. Like. Yeah,
0: it's just, it's heartbreaking and it's crazy. And I think one of the most profound things, one of the speakers at this event said was, we just need to love on each other as members of the LGBTQ community. You know, that's the most important thing because this hearing it day after day is traumatic in itself. You know, you don't have to have physically been there and seen somebody get stabbed to know that it could still happen to you. They brought that up. They said, you know, all of us, whether you're here to dance or just here to watch are supporters and members of the ballroom community. And now that is enough to get you killed. And especially to mention that O'Shea Sibley was a black man. The Mm -hmm. death toll for black queer and trans people is so much higher than it is for white people in the LGBTQ community. So, you know, it's just, it's a risk. It's a danger that these people took to even be out there and you know, a lot of people would say, "Well, this is Capitol Hill. You know, it's it's the gay People are supportive." But O'Shea was killed in Brooklyn, New York. You know,
1: that's also a very liberal place, and these pockets of hate exist everywhere. Well, yeah, and I mean, we see this even in Seattle. We see these. You know, just a couple weeks ago, we talked about how that one person purposely made skid marks over the painted like rainbow road and on Capitol Hill. Like, like thank goodness they're deciding to take their frustration out on the road and not on a human being, but how far away are we from that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I guess if there's one thing you could take away from this story um, that isn't fear and devastation, it is just the importance that we need to continue to protest with joy. You know, that was what they did. They showed that they weren't afraid, and it was just the biggest fuck you to anybody that would ever think about harming somebody for being proud of who they are and existing in that shameless you know, energy. That's all I can say is it was shameless to see how these people danced. It was beautiful. It was as if nobody was watching and everybody was watching all at the same time. Mm -hmm. So for members of the ballroom community, our hearts go out to you. For, you know, the family and friends of O'Shea Sibley, our hearts go out to you. And, you know, anybody listening to this podcast, just kind of do what those speakers said and love on the people in your community. Let them know that they matter because you never know.
1: Yeah. And express yourself freely. Yeah. I mean, it is a scary time, but we need to practice that more, expressing ourselves without any shame in uh, public life, because otherwise we're not really living, are we? Yeah. You know, I just want to
0: end on this one quote from uh, this person I talked to, uh, Zakai Davis Rodriguez, who's this young person that was here to vogue out for O'Shea. And they said, We're here to come together as a community and show we're stronger as a community. You can take one of us away, but more will come back. And I think that that is the hopeful piece in this story is yes, they've taken somebody away in a tragic and violent manner, but so many more people are here to step up and fight back. It is a fabulous army we have. I mean, I don't want to see any violence. I don't want to see any more violence, but don't be afraid to dress how you want to dress. Don't be afraid to dance. To Vogue at the gas station. It's not a crime, you know. So
1: self-expression is not a cr-
0: yes, absolutely. And whatever that means for you, you know, if it's femininity, if it's masculinity, if it's something in between, if it's a fur suit, you know, express yourself however you want to express yourself. And there are people that will love you for that, and there are people that will hate you for that. And fuck them. Yeah,
1: you just gotta keep <laughs> dancing. Let them be angry. Let them be sad. Well, it's kind of a sad story to end on. I wish we had a way to, like, uplift this a little bit more. I know. Yeah, just go out there and express yourself, I guess. And, you know, the next time that you're dancing or or expressing yourself in whatever way, do a little jig for O'Shea. Yeah,
0: yeah, I like that. Okay, so this has been our show. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have an amazing week. Hug your friends, let them know how much they matter to you. Hug your dogs and let them know how much they matter to you. If you think you spend more on your dogs than me, please let me know. So don't feel so bad about that. Benny, is there anything else you'd like to add? I think we're good. Okay, cool. (laughs) Bye. Bye.
2: Radio SGN is hosted by Benny Loy and Lindsay Anderson and edited by Daniel Lindsley. The music for the show is provided by TRG Banks and Jesse Spillane or was provided for free by Anchor. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out on SGN. Dot .org This podcast is part of the Seattle Gay News Podcasting Network